Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Question, how often does a woman's name appear next to the director credit? Answer, not all that often, but the landscape is changing. Elizabeth Williamson, my guest today, is certainly instrumental in making that happen. Not only does she have a long list of director credits, she is the Associate Artistic Director at Hartford Stage, a position she's held since 2015. Elizabeth is also a dramaturg, a theatrical literary advisor who researches, adapts, and interprets scripts, which he did for the Tony Award-winning musical A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, The Flamingo Kid at the Hartford, The Inheritance at the Young Vic West End, to name just three. Before joining Hartford Stage, Elizabeth was Associate Artistic Director and Literary Manager for Pioneer Theatre Company, in Salt Lake City, Utah. She's also worked with About Face Theater, the American Conservatory Theater, Steppenwolf, and the Williamstown Theater Festival. Elizabeth has a BA in Theater and Comparative Literature from Bennington College, a Master's in European Literature from Oxford, and she trained at the École Internationale de Théâtre Jacques Lecoq in Paris. She is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Literary Translation and is a member of Lincoln Center Theater Directors Lab, Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of America. So, let's meet and get to know Elizabeth Williamson. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. So, Elizabeth, let's go back in time. Where did your bent for theater come in to play? Oh, you know, very, very early. And it's so funny because I thought I wanted to be an actor for ages, but... Even when I was like 10 years old, I would gather my friends round and I wrote several shows. One was The Life of Joan of Arc, (laughs) and I would make my friends play the roles that I thought were most appropriate for them. So I remember in that Joan of Arc in particular, although clearly I thought I wanted to be an actor, I wrote it, I directed it, and I made my best friend play Joan of Arc while I did a couple very small supporting roles because she was much better casting. (laughs) Did your parents take you to the theater? You know, they did, but they took me to operas earlier. They both really, really love opera. My father now has a subscription to Berkeley Rep, but I think I saw, oh, La Boheme at San Francisco Opera with my school, actually, when I was in fourth grade. And then my dad took me to Santa Fe Opera the next summer, and I really, really fell in love with it. And then, yes, theater as well. But opera was actually first, which is interesting. In the fourth grade, I think that's a first. It was it was great, you know. It was very Berkeley, California. Uh, we had a great musical music education program in that school. Um, we started. I started learning cello in fourth grade, which I think my parents were very grateful for because I wanted to do violin, and my mom thought beginning violin in the house was going to be a bit much. <laughs> right. So you're a West Coast lady. I I am. I was born on the East Coast, but my parents are academics. They're both poets. And so I traveled around with their different jobs. You know, actually, the first shows I made, I was even younger, I think like five or six, and I would do puppet shows. 
with one of their best friend's daughters. I remember we did one about Nixon and Watergate, which had our parents just <laughs> in stitches. And thinking back, you can only think what the six and eight-year-old had understood of what they had heard about Watergate. That is crazy. Probably a little limited. Oh, that is great, but it's good <laughs> but the crazy. the animals were great, great standards. <laughs> Clearly, with your parents being poets, you must have had so much exposure to all of that growing up. I did. I did. You know, I my joke is that I was really, really reactive and revolutionary and didn't become an English professor, unlike both my parents, my stepmother, and three of my four grandparents. <laughs> the fourth grandparent did do her master's in English literature. She just didn't end up teaching. You were just so exposed to this, and it resonated with you, which is a great thing. Well, I think my mother wouldn't let me learn how to read until I went to school. So it had the sort of allure of the forbidden. Mm -hmm. She thought books were dangerous in our family. So she kept shooing me away from them, um, which probably meant that once I did start reading, I got hooked uh -huh. early. But yeah, it was also just the world I grew up in. And so when it was time for you to go to college, as I said in the introduction, you majored in both theater and comparative literature. So what did you think you were going mm -hmm. to do with your degree? When I was going into my senior year, sitting down and having one of those very formal, what, what is the next step of your life conversations with your parents? And at that point, I said, well, I think I either want to be a theater director or I want to go into publishing and run a series at a publishing firm. And in a way, I've ended up doing what I've ended up doing is kind of like if you put those two things together and married them. Mm -hmm. I've run new play development for the last decade at a couple of major regional theaters, which involves doing a lot of the work that the editor of a series at a press does. It's getting to know writers, figuring out what they're working on that's really exciting, commissioning projects from them, and then working with them as they write those projects, giving them editorial notes, asking a lot of questions helping them flesh out what they're writing. So I ended up doing both of those to a kind of wonderful degree in jobs that I'd never heard of at that point. Now, when you graduated from Bennington, did you go right to Oxford? I did. I did. I graduated a little young, so it seemed a bit young to just go to New York. And I was also really, I, my career's always been sort of gone from project to project that I was obsessed with. And at that point, I was really, really into Marcel Proust. And there was something I was trying to figure out about in A La Recherche that hadn't been written about yet. So, and because, as I said, my parents are literary critics as well as poets, and my grandparents were as well, that sort of is an obvious thing to think of doing in my family. So I went to Oxford. I applied with the dissertation I wanted to write on Proust, and I spent the year doing my master's there, doing a lot of the research and writing the first couple chapters, and really loving the research and then finding that I didn't actually then want to write a book about it. Huh. It was interesting to realize that, well, I really loved figuring it out. I loved doing the research. I loved figuring out the answer to the puzzle for myself. I then am always much more interested in going and making something as I was lucky enough several years later to do, take that research and get to go work with Mary Zimmerman on her wonderful show, Monsieur Proust, which was the first show I professionally dramaturged. Seemed like sort of the perfect marriage. And how old were you when that happened? Um, when I dramaturged Mary's show? Yes. I don't know, like 26, 27? Mm -hmm. And did that kind of open up a whole world for you? It was really exciting. You know, I'd been directing and adapting 
my own work, but I hadn't, um, I hadn't dramaturged before and I really loved it. I got my first couple experiences working as a dramaturg were with Mary and then with a company called Theatre de la Jeune Lune in Minneapolis and working with such brilliant creators and theater artists who work in such exciting boundary pushing ways mm-hmm. artistically was really, really fun for me. So when you were experiencing this and working as a dramaturg, did you somewhere in your mind think to yourself that you would have this parallel tract, that you would be doing this, but you would also be at the helm in terms of directing plays? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always done both. I do love on a really ambitious show with a brilliant director and exciting writers. It's wonderful to be the dramaturg. Um, I apply a lot of the same skills that I apply when I'm directing a show myself in terms of thinking about the structure of the experience, how the audience will take it in, are all the pieces there that need to be, are they in the right order, things like that. It's really it's really fun to me to be that part of the team, but I also enjoy directing my own shows. You know what comes across in the, this conversation so far, and we haven't even talked that long, is your passion. It's, it's just so obvious. Oh. <laughs> I, I do love what I do. I'm very lucky in that way. And how lucky were you professionally? Like I also said in the introduction, you don't see a lot of female directors. It's changing. I happen to interview a lot of film female directors, but when it comes to theater, Mm -hmm. it's not that ubiquitous. It is changing and not as fast as I would have hoped. I remember when I entered the field, I think 23% of major theaters were run by women. And that number is, I think, maybe now 24. <laughs> <laughs> and what <laughs> year was that? Do you go back? What, I, what, what year was, was that? 99. 99, okay. So I thought, oh, you know, by the time I'm, I'm really going in the field, that will have changed radically. And it's starting to. I don't think anyone has put together the numbers yet this year since there've been, there's been a lot of turnover in who's running, especially the major American regional theaters. So hopefully that number has shifted up to a degree. You know, it has shifted up to a degree, not as seriously as it hopefully will. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's it's a little disappointing that it hasn't changed more radically. Did you feel that you've always had to prove yourself more than John Smith did? You know, that's interesting. I've always been so wrapped up in my projects that I probably haven't thought about it in those terms mm-hmm. for my own work. Well, clearly, again, your passion and your ability and your talent was contagious, and people wanted to work with you. Talk to me about what that is like to be at the helm, for example, of a Broadway-bound show or to be at regional theater. What have you learned in the course of your illustrious career? Oh, I feel like I'm, I'm always learning. It's wonderful to get to work with people like Matthew Lopez and Stephen Daldry on The Inheritance, the just lessons in stagecraft from watching Stephen direct that show were incredible. At the same time, I'm working right now on an object theater piece in Norway with Yael Rasuli and watching the way she puts together a piece thinking in terms of visual storytelling and music and not as and text as being a sort of secondary thing in putting together that show is also really wonderful just to remind me, oh, there's so many different ways of going at telling any story. And which medium are you going to choose? So there's a an ease, a sashaying, so to speak, of going from directing to being a dramaturg. 
it just gives me this wonderful unparalleled access to being in the room with extraordinary directors as a dramaturg and getting to watch how they go at doing things. Mm -hmm. Hopefully getting a little bit of that to bring back when I'm directing myself, but also getting to think about theater making from different points of view at multiple points over the course of the season, because I also have spent a lot of time producing regional theater. So I've been involved in producing six or seven shows a year for a decade. And that really teaches you a huge amount as well. Just watch how incredibly different kinds of pieces pull together over the course of a rehearsal development, a rehearsal period, technical rehearsals and previews. That's really interesting. I never thought about that. Before we move ahead, I just have to say parenthetically that I go Mm -hmm. to a lot of theater in New York and I saw The Inheritance and I was blown away. Uh, I saw both oh. parts, one and part two, in the same day. What an experience. Oh, I'm, I'm so delighted to hear that. Um, it was it was a great honor to get to work on it. It's been one of the most exciting projects of my life. And and Matthew Lopez, the writer, what is he, 12 years old, for heaven's sake? <laughs> well, he's, he's been around a little longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's younger to me. <laughs> How did you wind up? at the Hartford stage, which, when it comes to regional theater, has lots of street cred. I was very lucky. Darko Treznik took over the company, and he was looking for someone to come and lead new play development here. Um, And I had spent four years in Salt Lake City and really had had the opportunity there to found a new play development program, which is a rare thing to get to do these days. And I'd love doing that, but it felt like it was time to move on. So when Darko took over Hartford and was looking for someone to lead new play development, the company here has a wonderful, really extraordinary history of starting major new plays and some musicals as well. So it was really a great honor to get to come and join him here. That was, what, almost eight years ago now. You were talking also about, you know, doing something in Norway. You live all over the place. you're, You're almost nomadic, huh? Well, I'm based in Hartford. I love I love Hartford. But I've spent a lot of time in New York the last few years. And because of the inheritance, I got to spend a lot of time in London, which was really fun. And it's fun with this new project to be looking at working in Norway this year as well. I think it's always incredibly refreshing to go into a different culture and see how they approach this thing that we think we know how works making theater Uh you know we think oh we do four weeks of rehearsal we do six to eight hour days then longer days in tech rehearsals we've got our whole schedule and that's how you make a show and you go to another country and you go oh actually they're incredibly different ways of going and making a show i remember when i was talking to some colleagues in estonia about doing a (laughs) co-production a few years ago they took a look at our rehearsal schedule and they said how can you possibly do that The actors, I mean, they just physically can't do that. And I realized that the way they rehearse, the actors are playing at 100% and they're deeply physical productions. And so for them, it's they can do a three-hour rehearsal session and then take a couple hours break and then do another three-hour rehearsal session. But when they saw our schedules, they thought, that's crazy. And of course, we're used to figuring out how to calibrate and everyone marking their voices at certain points so as to save them in longer rehearsals to get a show done in four weeks. Uh huh. So it's really fun and also just, you know, I think it's helpful because we, we can get set in our ways and think this is the way it is. So it's good to go and see how another country approaches it completely differently often. Well, another country as in Estonia, did you ever 
imagine you'd find yourself there? I mean, Norway's one thing, but Estonia? There is this amazing theater company, and I saw a piece that they did in London that they did um, this, this, a couple of really beautiful international co-productions where they made pieces that were co-produced by companies in different countries, but were also to a degree about the relationship between those countries. So they did a piece in London with the Lyric Hammersmith that was also a co-production with a German company, um, the Munich Kammerspiele, I think. I hope I'm getting that right. And the piece was about the relationship between the three countries mm-hmm. and about crime and how it how crime rings developed through the three countries. And it also changed theatrical forms. So it started in London as a piece that was a sort of standard British police drama. And it then these two police officers went to Germany. It got a little crazier. <laughs> then the trail took them to Estonia and it got a lot crazier and a lot more physical with the physical company of actors there getting involved. And I thought, what an extraordinary thing to make a piece where the differences in how you make theater are an inherent part of the collaboration. So it was really exciting to talk to them. Unfortunately, we weren't able to do the co-production with America, but they were they were doing some really, really thrilling genre-pushing things. Describe a place that kind of really overwhelmed you or bowled you over or you never in a million years thought you would be directing a play in? Well, I haven't directed there, but the Avignon Festival is one of the most extraordinary places on earth for theater. You go there and the festival has some of the most brilliant directors and companies making work now. And then there's the off festival, the fringe festival happening at the same time. So if you wanted to, you could see 50 different productions on any given day. It's around 100 degrees. And you're also seeing everything from wonderful fringe comedy to some of the most profound reinterpretations of the classics currently being made. It's a really, really stunning festival. What's had the most impact for you? I think there's so many moments. I mean, when I was a student, certainly the first piece I saw of Théâtre du Soleil, Ariane Mnuchin's company, really blew me away. I just thought it's it's an extraordinary company and doing political work, but not doing it in an at all naturalistic style, but in an epic, on an epic scale, telling stories of what's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. That really amazed me. Um, but that's, you know, again, that's 20 years ago. But that's why I went to study at the École Jacques Lecoq in Paris and got interested in sort of all the theater companies that came out of that training program. So that was a very, that was certainly very transformative. What would you like to do that you haven't done? What's on your wish list? Oh, so many things. Um, I'm really enjoying starting to do adaptations again. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done any since my early 20s. Um, I mean, I'd done a couple translations in the interval, but doing Jane Eyre right now has been a great, great joy and has made me start to think about other of my favorite novels and think, ooh, maybe it would be fun to do a contemporary take on Anna Karenina. How would that work? (laughs) How How would I go into that? I've also been getting really interested in telling, I think, various women's stories. Mm. There's something about doing Jane Eyre and thinking how revolutionary and um, provocative it was at the time it came out, how much abuse Bronte got Mm -hmm. for the feminism in the novel. Mm -hmm. 
So it's been interesting to go back and dig into that and think about that. I've been thinking about various stories from that period as well and going, oh, what, you know, what is interesting to tell right now? When it came to Jane Eyre and presenting it that at Hartford stage, so this is a collaborative effort. Who decides what play is going to be shown? I don't know that people realize how that works. It had been in my mind for quite a few years. I'd, I've always wanted to see, to see it on stage. I actually never had. And um, I realized around a decade ago when I read, there's some great existing adaptations, but when I read the ones that were around a decade ago, I realized none of them did the thing I was most excited about, which was catching Jane's own voice on stage. Huh. The voice with which she tells us how she made her decisions, what she was up against, the kind of opens the door to us on how radical it was for her to say, think of applying to be a governess without having someone set her up with a job, but have to figure it out on her own. Mm. How crazy it was for her to, at a certain point, decide that she was just leaving someplace she couldn't stay and she was going without any money, without any resources, and going to fling herself on the world and see what she could make of it. So I knew that I was really interested in hearing that story, and I was a little disappointed for me in otherwise very good adaptations that I didn't get how radical her actions were in the existing adaptations. Uh So a few years ago, as I was going back to the novel and thinking about that, I thought, well, maybe I should just do an adaptation of it. And I talked about it a little with Hartford Stage's then artistic director, Darko Treznik, and he said, you, you should totally do that. And I thought about doing it last year, but was so deep in both working as a dramaturg on The Inheritance and on another really exciting commission, Bess Wool's Make Believe, that I thought I can't possibly also be adapting a show. So this season seemed like the perfect time to do it. I want to pick up on something. Talk about what it's like to do an adaptation. Explain that process, because that's that fascinates me. I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways of doing it. There's the way that is maybe more a writer's way of telling a new story based on that story, taking it as a jumping off point and telling something that's closely related, but not exactly the same as it. For me, it's more closely related to my work as a dramaturg in that there's something in the source material that I want to see translated on stage. So it feels very close to translation, which I did as an undergrad and have spent a lot of time working in literary translation. So the adaptations that I felt I've done most successfully, I've been really trying to get inside the voice of something and figure out how to make it work in another medium. Had Jane Eyre, like you said, been something you really wanted to do? It had been sort of sitting in the back of my brain for a decade. And the last couple of years, I started thinking, oh, let me just, you know, I should really just do this. This would be fun. When it comes to adaptations, for example, you can, can that be in the sense that you call the shots? Yeah, I mean, because I was working on the adaptation, it seemed, it made most sense for me to direct it as well. It wasn't already a finished thing, so I could set about just making all the decisions you have to make when you're putting together a production in terms of design the world of the show, how the show's going to work on stage, how naturalistic is it, how, to a degree, the way I've directed Jane Eyre, it's more like a memory play. 
that scenes come in and out of the past as she evokes them or as she suddenly remembers them and they start happening to her again. Uh And she's stepping in and out of the past so that she's going between the self that's telling us and the self she was at the time this was happening. So really because I was just figuring out how I was doing that as an adapter over the course of adapting it this year, I needed to direct this first production of it myself. Uh Uh-huh. Because only I would be enough inside my own brain to know how to think about (laughs) staging that before it was all out on paper. But I'm not sure I completely answered your question. No, no, no. You were saying? I see in the playbill, you know, adapted by. Mm -hmm. I know what a director does. The adapter is interesting. The adapter writes the script. Oh. So the actual pages that the actors are performing from, the adapter writes. Or, in my case, steals almost all the dialogue from Charlotte Bronte, figures out how to arrange it into scenes that hopefully will play on stage, and shortens, goes, okay, how how am I going to take a 600-page novel and make it an exciting, hopefully, two-hour-long performance? What section of the novel am I going to highlight? What's the motor going to be on stage? So for my production of Jane Eyre, that was deciding to take the gothic mystery element of the story and use that to sort of run the engine of the play with the romance as well. But the novel is a building's roman. It's a young woman's coming of age and coming into her own. And it takes place over a series of long stays at different places. So I chose one location and the mystery of that to sort of drive the adaptation, if that makes sense. So, but often for for playwrights who are doing adaptations, they will have a very different ra- ratio of words they wrote compared to the source material. I mean, mine is probably 80% Bronte, 20% me, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that might become much more 60% for the person doing the adaptation, 40% the original. Working on an adaptation is a solitary act, right? You're off in the corner mm-hmm. in your own space as opposed to being a, yeah. di- a director with your, there you are, it's smack in the middle. You're the axis mm-hmm. around which everything revolves. Yeah, it's challenging to try to do both simultaneously. There were definitely points in this process where I was going, okay, director, step aside for a minute. We need to do rewrites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, okay, adapter. The actors can't take any more rewrites right now. (laughs) You go over there and let me stage these scenes that you wrote. Do you do that often, that combination? I haven't in a number of years. The last few years, I have not directed things I've adapted myself. As I say, it made the most sense for this project, but it was a lot to be doing. I hadn't done it since I was in my probably mid-20s. And did it feel great? It was really fun, but it was also more tiring than it used to be. How many plays a year, on average, do you direct at the Hartford stage? Not more than one, because I'm also running new play development, often producing a fair bit of the season, and dramaturging. Dramaturging shows and working on developing new shows. So there's a lot on your plate in addition to all the traveling that you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you share with us what's coming down the pike for you? Well, I'm excited about this new piece in Norway. And then I have a number of projects that are really early, early process that I'm pretty thrilled about. We have some wonderful commissions out to some pretty extraordinary playwrights as well. When you look back at your career, Elizabeth, does it give you pause? Do you feel like over the course of all these years you've died and gone to heaven? I've gotten to work with some pretty amazing people on some really thrilling productions. I have to say it's it's a really fun field. Yeah, but I need you to brag more. 
<laughs> it's been really great. <laughs> <laughs> but you're respected and people want to work with you. Thank you so much. I feel like I love getting the puzzle pieces of different projects and going, oh, how can this one fit together? I'm working on a new musical right now, as well as this new object theater piece, as well as a couple new adaptations. And it's just, it's fun to sort of go, okay, what pieces does this need to work? How does, how can this structure itself? Musicals are really, really fun to work on that way. Because you go, okay, what's the song doing? What's the director doing? So the director is of paramount importance in musical theater. How are they structuring this? Oh, well, in that case, what about this piece or that piece? Oh, man. It's really fun. Yeah, it just seems so overwhelming. Also, I have to assume that for whatever the projects you've worked on that you gave birth to, you've always had support and encouragement. I mean, it's it's a collaborative field. It's the great joy of it and also the terror of it is you rely completely on your collaborators in the theater. And I've been really, really lucky to get to work with some extraordinary directors, writers, and actors and designers over the years. I'm going to go down one other road and yeah. be sort of obnoxious. What's bombed? You know, I think it's it's inevitable that you have failures, right? Mm-hmm. That's if, if you don't, you're not taking enough risks, I think, and you're not going to make anything extraordinary. But I think even the failures, hopefully are good steps to learn why they failed, to figure out what risk was one too many to take. One of the big ones that I'm always very aware of because of working so much on new work is at what point do you commit to giving a new play a production? And what's the right moment? Because you don't want people to overwork before they actually get their actors and get it up on its feet and get to figure out the form and bring in an audience. But you do always want to make sure there's enough time. So I think one of the great challenges I've found over the years has been learning how to think about that with a lot of different artists and to figure out, to get inside their processes and where they are in their process and when the right moment is to do that. So I think Sometimes you'll have the challenge of doing a piece that isn't quite ready to be done yet. But then sometimes you'll do a piece. I remember talking with Bess Wool when we committed to producing Make Believe, which I think is one of the most successful things I've commissioned. And at the moment we said we'd produce it, she was like, I have so many drafts left to do. And we said, yes, we know, but this is going to be really phenomenal and we'll do all the development you need. And then did another year and a half's rewrites and workshops with her because she was she had set out to do this incredibly crazy brilliant thing of writing a play that is a play starring children but for adults dealing with what happened why do some children cope better with childhood trauma than others and she decided to do that with this play by focusing on a family of four kids who all go through the same difficult period when their parents are splitting up And it's just those four kids in their playroom on stage for the first 50 minutes of the play. Oh, my God. Which was probably the scariest thing producerially I've done to go, okay, we're just going to take the leap and say this will work. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) We premiered it here at Hartford Stage, and then it was in New York last summer at Second Stage in a second production. Wow, that really is an undertaking. And I think it's one of Bess's most successful plays, but also one of the sort of things where I remember she said in the 
commissioning conversation, she said, well, you're not going to want to commission this play, but. Has <laughs> <laughs> it been just so exciting for you also to work with a lot of women, to be in a production and just see so much estrogen I love working with men and women, I'm afraid. Well, don't apologize for that. (laughs) Some of my closest collaborators are men, some are women. But certainly, I mean, Bess Wool is a playwright I've gotten to work with quite a bit over the years, and it's been thrilling to watch her trajectory as a playwright the last decade. She's really brilliant, and I'm working, developing a new piece with Sarah Gancher right now, who's another playwright I really love and have worked with quite a bit the last couple of years. And it's, it's really thrilling. Elizabeth, again, your enthusiasm and your passion is just so contagious. And you are my first theatrical director. And I feel really oh, honored wow. and, and blessed to have had this conversation with you and gotten to know you. The fact is not lost on me that there are not a lot of women doing what you do. There's some really extraordinary ones, but um, there aren't enough. There aren't enough women directing on Broadway. Certainly, it's. I think, as in many fields, women make more progress in the smaller budget theaters yeah. before they do in the larger budget theaters. Right. Rachel Chavkin, who's an extraordinary director, made a really beautiful speech at the Tonys when she won the Tony for Best Director for Hades Town last year saying she really shouldn't be the only woman. Yeah, exactly. I know. And what was going on, because there are plenty of great women directing. They're just not necessarily getting as much prominence. Well, we're really glad that you're getting prominence. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your career and your life with us. It's really been fascinating and much more continued success here, there, and everywhere. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.